The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Pipette is a clean baby and mom care brand with a mission to give every family the best start. Any parent wants what's best for their children, and that includes using only the safest products on their delicate skin. Pipette has quickly become a customer favorite for its ultra gentle baby lotions, oils, and washes. And right now you can get 30% off its entire collection of personal items with the code HUMANS. Pipette sets the standard of clean and best performing products. While the FDA bans only 12 potentially harmful ingredients in skincare products, Pipette bans more than 2,000, ensuring its products are safe, effective, and use only non-toxic ingredients. Pipette's products are also Environmental Working Group verified, vegan, hypoallergenic, sustainable, pediatrician, and dermatologist approved. And all of Pipette's products are made with a key ingredient, squalane. When babies are born, their skin is coated with a creamy substance called Vernix, which provides powerful natural protection for newborns in the first hours after birth. Visit pipettebaby.com and get 30% off with the code HUMANS. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and today I have Jessica Leahy, author of The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. She is in conversation with me about who gets addicted and why, and importantly, what parents can do, what conversations parents can have, what boundaries and expectations parents can have, and how to build a relationship with your kids so that they have a reduced risk of substance abuse. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoy this episode, please don't hesitate to subscribe, rate, and write a little review. And I hope you enjoy this episode. It's so important to have these conversations. They're difficult to think about. And yet, the earlier we start having intentional parenting related to raising healthy kids in a culture of dependence, the more likely our kids will be inoculated. What I hope is that parents will read this and they'll say, okay, now I have a really good idea of what the risk factors are so I can target the preventative stuff even better as opposed to saying, oh my gosh, there's so many risk factors that I just, uh, there's nothing I can do. I want to be as empowering as possible. Well, you are, and I so appreciate it. And somehow in this short window of time, I would love to go through who gets addicted and why. Yeah, yeah. And what parents can do really Mm -hmm. in a concrete way. So today we're going to go through who gets addicted and why and what parents can do to sort of set the stage for the honest conversations we need to have and the boundaries for the support that kids are going to need from emerging adolescence through adolescence. No biggie. No big deal. So let's start with thinking about who gets addicted and why. So there's this analogy that I, I have got to work on this and try to come up with another one, but this analogy is so apt, which is that genetics, which plays about fit, which is about 50 to 60% of the picture is a bullet and trauma 
is the trigger. So you put the bullet in the gun, it just sits there and does nothing until trauma sort of gets things rolling. And I, that's not the full picture. Very little of what we're talking about when we talk about this topic is like the end all be all final answer to you know a question, but it's that's a pretty darn good analogy. So yeah. I was born, you know, to both sides of my family, there's substance abuse. Uh, both sides of my husband's family, there's substance abuse. My husband got lucky. He has the genetic stuff, but he just can drink like a normal human being. And I have the genetics there and I can't. So there's the genetics and then there's the epigenetics, which is essentially, you know, what kids go through in their early lives affects how our genes express. And so that's sort of kind of sort of genetics and kind of sort of environment. So that's 50 to 60% of it there. And then we have to start talking about that trauma trigger that I was talking about. And when people talk about trauma, you know, I'm sort of talking about big T trauma, like adverse childhood experiences. I encourage people to go read Nadine Burke Harris's The Deepest Well, because she does a beautiful job of talking about how adverse childhood experiences affect our overall, our lifelong health and well-being and mental health and all that sort of stuff. So on top of that, so you've got, and I tend to think about risk um, for substance abuse and protection against substance abuse as like that old timey scale of justice where you've got risk on one side and prevention on the other. So we've got genetics and epigenetics. We've got um, adverse childhood experiences, which can th be things like, you know, violence in the home, substance abuse in the home, there's divorce and separation, things like that. And then after that, we got to start talking about things like academic failure and children who are aggressive towards other children or, um, you know, all of the, and social ostracism. So all of these issues, adverse childhood experiences and um, the other things I was just talking about, all of those, if we could start doing some early interventions for those, we could start to get our arms around um, the things that cause kids to have to numb out or fill in the hole that exists inside of them, or some people call it self-medicating. It's not a particularly helpful way to talk about it, their feelings. And, you know, that's sort of where we are with the risk. But, but in terms of who gets addicted, you know, it's every socioeconomic group, it's every race, it's every ethnicity, you know, the media would like to make us believe that it's you know, that there are certain people who are, you know, addicts more than others. But as Stephen King likes to say, you know, we all look about the same barfing and, the, you know, vomiting in the gutter. It's, there isn't really a great way to look at a kid when they're born or their skin color or, or where they come from and say, with the exception of, is there substance abuse in their background? So, but as, and the one last thing I'd love to say is that just because you have substance abuse in your, in your genes does not mean that's not your destiny not necessarily as, as my husband can attest. So I guess I want to ask at what point in parenting do we have this conversation? Are we talking about broadly speaking for every kid? <laughs> when are we starting to talk about substances and substance use and substance abuse or whatever terminology you want to use. And I think in that context, I just want to go kind of through the developmental phases, mm -hmm. both because the listeners have kids of all ages and right. also because certainly, and I loved what you said about the euphemisms and the language that we choose to use even with younger children and how it's not that you want to bombard children with mm -hmm. appropriate information. Mm -hmm. but you also don't want to lie to them when things are right in front of their face and make them think they're crazy. Yeah. So assuming all of those things, and also that kids might not have any exposure to 
to seeing any of this or thinking about any of Mm -hmm. this without parents talking to them, what ages and what conversations should you start to have before Mm -hmm. your kids learn for the first time about any substances Mm -hmm. from their peers? What I think is really important to understand about conversations about drugs and alcohol, number one, is that there's not like one conversation. It's like the sex talk. It's a lot of little conversations, like starting with, you know, these are the parts of our body all the way back there. So same thing with drugs and alcohol. What we're talking about is a long-term conversation and it starts really young about health, about the things we put in our bodies about, you know, why we wash our hands, why people are wearing masks right now, why we don't swallow the toothpaste instead of spitting it out in the sink. Why, for example, if you have medications on your counter, there's a a prescription medications. That's a great way to start a conversation with a little kid about why do you think my name is on this medication and not yours or your sister's? And do you think that it, because we have it, that that means that you can take it too? What would make your body different from my body that maybe it wouldn't, you know, I'm bigger than you, blah, blah, blah. All these kind of conversations about start with conversations about the, the you know, the Tide Pod thing, for example, you know, they're pretty, they look like candy, but why do we not put those inside of our body? Why does this bottle I have right here with cleaner say for external use only? What do you think that means? So all of these conversations about just general health, and this is what I'm so optimistic about is that substance abuse programs, especially the ones that are in schools um, that work really well also in conjunction with families are at their heart, really good social emotional learning programs with a health component. So that health component starts with those conversations I was talking about and then develops developmentally with the kid comes, you know, evolves developmentally with the kid. So that, for example, when you're at Thanksgiving at grandma's house and uncle Ted has to go outside to smoke, you can have a conversation about like, why do you think Ted has to step outside to smoke? Why not just smoke in the house? And what is it, you know, these conversations that evolve naturally when you start talking about things like, oh, well, a secondhand smoke is dangerous for us. Wouldn't the regular smoke be dangerous for Ted and all that sort of stuff. And then evolving through. So the other thing that's important to realize is that most schools, if they do have a substance abuse prevention program, doesn't start tend to start until middle school. But that's too late because most most people who report having started as an adolescent report that they started their use in middle school. So middle school to start that conversation is too late. First of all, it's just awkward to start that conversation. You know, if you like there's no easy way to segue into a conversation about alcohol and drugs with a kid. But when you've been having regular health conversations, it's not at all surprising. And I have to tell you, the first time I had to have a conversation with my kids about this stuff, I thought I was going to throw up. Um, In the book, I talk about the fact that when I realized I was an alcoholic, I did throw up. It was just so horrifying to me. But now my my 17-year-old was in a biology class last semester, and his teacher said, asked the kids to raise their hands if their parents ever talk about substances like drugs and alcohol. And my kid was like, when don't they have (laughs) conversations about it? It's a regular thing that we... Now I just need to become like, I don't know, an expert in sex or something. And then those conversations get easier. But for now, right now, it's a substance abuse conversation that's regular and easy because we have it so often. So the answer to your question is, when do you start about drugs a little before middle school, but about everything in preschool? 
And like I said, and the nice thing is, as I was mentioning, really good substance abuse prevention programs in schools that have a good health component that are evidence-based, that are actually tested and proven effective, often have a home component to them where schools and home can work together and they're sort of already designed that way. So even for parents that are having trouble bringing this stuff up that don't know how to handle it, check with your school. There's a very good possibility that if your school does have a good substance abuse prevention program that's part of a good SEL program, there might be some components that you can use. Although I I overstate that because it turns out that only 57% of schools in this country have a substance abuse prevention program. And of that 50%, only 10% are evidence-based. But that's, I'm optimistic about that because look at how much we can get done so easily um, because some SEL programs are already out there and floating around in the zeitgeist. And if we're doing that badly, we can't do much worse. And all the stuff is there. All we have to do is start implementing it. I think that to be armed as parents with tools to have conversations and to figure out what the boundaries are in your household that makes sense for you and your values and your child's temperament is extra helpful and then hopefully supplemented by the school instead of the reverse where the parents mm-hmm. supplementing what the schools are doing. But that right. might be a temporary situation, although it is, I think, you know, we're in. I think the other problem right now is we know that drinking among adults went up during the pandemic by a lot. Yeah. Uh, I mean, hello, I'm 10 pounds heavier than I was going yeah. into this thing. So I'm yeah. definitely I'm not, not 10 <laughs> I am self-soothing with food. And if I could, I've actually said this a bunch of times, if I was drinking, if I had, didn't have some sobriety under my belt before going into this, like who boy. And it's a really difficult time to get help because no one's doing stuff in person Mm -hmm. anyway. So I think the problem during this is that parents are really scared. And I was one of them of the whole, I can't talk to my kids about their use because I don't fully have a handle on my use or it's just scary because what if they ask me about whether or not I've ever done drugs or what if they say, but you drink wine, how can it be that bad? How you drink wine? And the nice thing about doing my job rocks because my job is to get curious about something and then go out and spend a couple of years researching it and find the answers I need and then figure out how to translate those for a popular audience. And so I've had to come at this five different ways and figure out how to have those conversations when the answer is, okay, well, yes, mommy did drink a lot of stuff and your daddy did live in a house where they grew their own pot and smoked a ton of weed when he was in his early twenties. But let me have that conversation with you based on some honest answers. And based on the fact that, you know, your dad can tell you, if you go ask him that his memory was much better going into that year. And by the way, the reason he smoked so much pot during that year was that he was really sad and really not happy with where his life was going and who he was and what he had achieved. And yet smoking all that pot did not help. In fact, it exacerbated the problem because it lowered his motivation and made it so that it was even harder for him to get a grip on his life. And so in the end, yeah, it helped him escape for about a year, but it also set him back in major ways, including having to do with, you know, the functioning of his hippocampus in his brain, which is where he was processing, um, you know, his memories at that time. So there's a lot we can do in order to get over the initial shame about our own or guilt, or even if it's not shame, even if it's just, I'm scared to death, my kid's going to say, you drink wine, so why can't I kind of thing. 
Um, that's a very tough hurdle to get over, especially as the first hurdle for a lot of parents. So let's say an 11 year old, there's a difference between like an 11 year old asking that question versus a 16 year old too. Mm -hmm. And with an 11 year old, it's easier to say, you know what, when your body is fully grown and your brain is fully developed, Mm -hmm. there are many things that you can do that are not good for a growing body. It's very Mm -hmm. different to say that to a kid who's like social world has that and they are grown. I mean, their brain isn't fully developed and I want you to address the research on Mm -hmm. the timing of Mm -hmm. when you start trying different things. For sure, let's get into that. But how much honesty or putting off do you do Mm -hmm. with the nine, 10, even 11 year olds versus the older kids? First, I want to flip your question on its head and tell you that one of the things we know in education is that giving kids information about how their brains work from a really early age helps give them a sense of control and self-efficacy and just a sense of, for example, I was in a a first grade classroom in Dallas, Texas, and they were teaching the kids about the difference between their sort of upper brain, they were using developmentally appropriate and and their amygdala and how, you know, sometimes when we're, you know, in first grade, we just want to reach out and punch that kid. And that's our amygdala. And as we get bigger and more mature, we understand that, that we can't just punch that kid, that we have to actually talk to that kid. And that comes from our upper brain. So are we having a lower brain moment or an upper brain moment? And that's empowering for a kid because not only does it give them tools to work with, it helps them realize it's not their fault that sometimes they do feel like they just want to reach out and punch that kid. So flipping it on its end, I think it's really important to talk to kids about brain development from really early age, not not just from a substance abuse perspective, but from a education perspective from an executive function. I mean, if middle school students, if middle school students just knew that it was a setup and that it's not their fault that we give them more than they can handle and no wonder they screw up all day long. Imagine what a relief that would be to them. Having a conversation with an older kid, there's an example in the book where I was talking to someone who's actually an expert in the field and his older son revealed to him, um, his kid's now in his twenties. And he revealed to him, he said, dad, you know what? I think the conversation that we had around what the drugs and alcohol you did when you were in college, I worry that we did that the wrong way, that you did that the wrong way. You made it seem really fun and exciting. And, and there was a little, and, and the, the guy, even at the, the expert even admitted that there, yes, there was a little bit about like wanting to seem cool to his kid and not like a square. Cause who's going to listen to someone who is just a square and is a teetotaler but he erred on the side of making it sound kind of fun and part of the college experience. And his son said, you know, I think you made it sound a little too romanticized. So I think there's a lot of conversations that we have that we can have down the middle. And it's not about the what to me, like what, what drugs and alcohol we've done, but the message we send around how we use those substances. So we know that people who drink in order to alleviate their anxiety and depression and tend to drink more on their own are more likely to have issues with substance abuse later on. We know that kids who drink in college to elevate, to make fun times with friends even more fun are probably less likely to have an issue later on in life. So if we understand that when we send our kids messages like, oh man, it was just such a hard day at work, or, oh, I had this big fight with your grandma and I I just need quiet and a glass of wine in order to cope with today. What we're saying is that we're using substances as our medicine. And 
that is sending a really harmful message. And I think it's become a little too easy to talk about, you know, the mommy wine culture and the wine o'clock and the mommy juice and the sippy cup things on top of the wine bottles. And even worse, you know, I was in a bookstore and I took a picture of this because I just couldn't believe it. Well, I could believe it, but I was horrified. And it said, there was a set of glasses that said, um, I teach, therefore I drink. Now, first of all, Oh, that's that's messed up on so levels, so many levels, because the idea is, yes, teaching is so hard or parenting is so hard. And therefore I deserve, I need, you know, all those beer commercials are like, you work hard all day long. Isn't it great to be able to come home and have a beer, blah, blah, blah. That's not the message we should, we should be sending around alcohol because what we're showing, we're showing them more than even what we say. And as you well know, kids tend to do what we do, not, you know, obey the things we tell them to do. What we're sending is this message of self-medication or not coping with the original problem. I mean, for me, the drink I miss the most is the one I now can't have right before I step into a party with what I'm sure are going to be fabulous people who have achieved amazing things. And who the heck am I? I'm, you know, I haven't done anything impressive and I have social anxiety and boy, I would be, it would be so much easier for me to walk into that party with that glass of wine. But without the glass of wine, I have to say what I've now had to deal with is that defeating voice in my brain. And so now instead of just quieting it with a glass of wine, I've actually kind of dealt with it, which, you know, is essentially what I want to get to with kids that to get to the point with kids where whatever it is that makes them feel like they have to take that first drink of of whatever, whether it's to impress someone else or because they feel that they're less than, or they feel like they don't have the instructions or they feel like if they could just be me, but better. Uh, What I want is to get kids the help they need early on so that they can feel like they are enough now and give them the support they need in order to feel that so they don't have to take that drink to feel like they can be more. We're just going to take a little break so I can tell you about our sponsors. Ancient Nutrition has one goal in mind, to transform the health of every individual on the planet. That drives them to create whole food nutritional products made with real ingredients for results you can see and feel. Every product they create is rooted in tradition and supported by science. Ancient nutrition is based in traditional Chinese herbalism and Ayurveda, which are ways of eating and thinking that have survived generations. And they combine this with modern research. They believe proper nutrition isn't just about eating the right foods, it's about ingredients your body can really use. So they source the world's highest quality ingredients and rigorously test them for pesticides, herbicides, and heavy metals. That's why they do everything they can to create products that your body can easily digest and absorb. And these formulas have a real impact. That's what they're about. Every one of those products has a purpose. Try their fan favorite, which is actually my favorite, the multi-collagen protein. If you're looking for a great place to start, this is it. It's like great for your joints, your skin, your hair, your skin texture, your skin tone. And it's made with clinically studied ingredients, including five types of collagen. But most importantly, it easily stirs into your morning coffee with absolutely no taste and it dissolves right away. So it's more than just collagen. It's convenience and results. Go to ancientnutrition.com and use the code HUMANS, H-U-M-A-N-S, for 20% off your first Ancient Nutrition purchase. 
If you're looking to revitalize your joints, skin, and hair, do it with clinically studied ingredients. Use code H-U-M-A-N-S for 20% off at store.draxe.com. Jane is a highly curated boutique marketplace featuring the latest in women's fashion, trends, home decor, accessories, children's clothing, pet clothing, and more. Jane.com features hundreds of new products every day, offering everything you need. Jane.com helps you stay on trend at amazing prices. Every day is a sale at jane.com. They offer a wide variety of categories and styles, and you can find something for everyone in your life. There are over 400 new products dropped daily. Everything from apparel to those very cute pet clothes. On jane.com, products only last for a limited time, so it kind of makes it a little bit fun to catch them at the right time. Jane.com is a place for discovering endless aisles that you can browse You can search specifically for what speaks to you if browsing isn't your thing. And by shopping at jane.com, you support small businesses. They offer products and name brands from over 2,000 shops, all at the best prices. So visit jane.com slash humans and find your next discovery. jane.com slash humans. Hi there, I'm Lauren McGoodwin, founder and CEO of Career Contessa, the largest online career resource built inclusively for women. I also have the privilege of hosting our new podcast, The Females. We're here to help with real talk career advice from CEOs, authors, creatives, and other experts to give you real strategies for building a successful career all on your own terms. Each episode of The Females is sure to not only inspire, but also to motivate you to take action and move your career forward. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday for new episodes and follow along on careercontessa.com. So now we have kids who are noticing, let's say it was Passover this weekend or right. might have some Easter celebrations coming up and the grownups are being more, being involved. Rocking the Manischewitz. That's yeah. what's happening, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so the kids are pretending like they're getting their, yeah. or New Year's Eve, they're getting their fake champagne mm-hmm. and- mm-hmm kind of wanting to be more like the grownups. Right. At what point do we say, you know, here are the ground rules in this household. So here's a funny thing for me is like trying to have this conversation with two different agendas. The first is the overarching right. parenting relationship. The, the relationship you have with your child is the biggest protective factor, mm-hmm. I would say, right? What, what does that Support no, I, I no, I absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, from my perspective, yes, absolutely. When research is really clear, when kids, no matter what they've been through, when kids have one supportive adult who has their back, even when they screw up, even when they are adrift, then their life outcomes are much, much better. So yes, that's sort of the magic thing right there is that connection with one adult who has their back. The second part of it is for the parents who are Focusing, obviously there's a self-selecting group listening to Raising Good Humans podcast, Mm -hmm. probably, or Mm -hmm. reading the addiction inoculation. You know, out of the gate that these are parents who are, whose intentions are to figure this out. But then separately coming up with the parameters and guidelines to be the guide so that there are clear Mm -hmm. definitions of what's acceptable or not acceptable Mm -hmm. in the house is complicated because, you know, I want to make sure that I have clear rules for my kids so that she has a place to lean against without 
you know, it becoming, mm-hmm. you know, a, a sturdy place to lean and know that that's it. That's the line. And also I don't want her to go and say, well, this is so unacceptable in my household. I got to go sneak around and I won't. And if I'm mm-hmm. in trouble or if I am in harm's way, I would rather be harmed than mm-hmm. have my mother find out that I broke her trust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and we know from parenting styles and authoritarian parents, those because mm-hmm. I said so relationships, it doesn't bode well for substance abuse. On the other hand, neither does permissive parenting, right? right. So what is the place of mm-hmm. balance where right. you're sensitive, but you have those expectations and boundaries in the area of substance? Yes. Like very specifically. So we know that kids who are more controlled by their parents will lie to their parents more. We know that kids who have really controlling surveillance sort of state parents, they will, because they need to individuate, because it is a natural part of adolescence to pull away and to individuate that if their parents don't give it to them, they're going to take it um, by deceit. This is just, we know this. Okay. On the other hand, we also know that, you know, permissive parenting, which what was always so frustrating to me is that with gift of failure, people always assumed what I was talking about was sort of permissive parenting. And yet I have never been a more strict parent since the day I decided, okay, I'm going to set really, really clear expectations and I'm going to make there be logical consequences, not these like arbitrary. If you don't get good grades, I'm taking your phone because those two things for a kid who doesn't have a prefrontal cortex don't make any sense. And it's not a logical consequence based on what would the natural consequences. So once I started making really clear expectations and they're enforcing really clear logical consequences, I was a much, I became a much more strict parent. Although from the outside, it might have looked otherwise because I wasn't checking the school portal. I wasn't looking over my kid's shoulder. I have never read my child's email. I have never read my kid's texts and I've never that's not true. One time we used find my iPhone, but that's because my son told us to, because he had a flat tire, but I've never done those things. And my kids actually don't believe me either, especially my younger one. He's positive. I'm lying. When I say I've never read his journals, I've never read his emails. I've never read his texts, but I haven't. So it looks like I'm giving, I'm, I'm being a very permissive parent, but what I'm being is what's called an autonomy supportive parent. I'm supporting my children's autonomy to make decisions. And keeping in mind, of course, that this is open to change at any time. If I felt like my child was in danger, I could change the rules and suddenly start reading the emails if that's what it took. I could use my, you would, that would be because you would say, right. Like I was not looking at this, right. These things have happened. I need to make sure that you're safe or whatever. Now I have to start Right. And there have been times uh, in the chapter on peers in the addiction inoculation, I talk about how difficult it was for me to know that one of my son's closest friends was getting kicked out of school for substance abuse or for substance use and multiple times got kicked out of school multiple times. And my instinct was to say, you cannot be friends with him. Well, number one, that doesn't work. (laughs) Right. They're in, they're in all their classes together. They run together. They're on the same track team. It's, it just would never have worked, but Ben and Brian were friends Brian was, and this, that's his real name. This is how, this is a kid and now an adult who just felt so strongly about telling his story and having that story be out there for people to hear. But the problem is, is that 
I had to show my son, A, that I respected his motives and staying, once I understood his motives for being friends with Brian, and we talked a lot about that, you know, what does this friendship bring to your life? What's value about the, valuable about this friendship to you? What does Brian give back to you? All of these things are important conversations we had, but my instinct was to clamp down as a parent and just say no, which, as I said, would not have worked and probably would have driven them closer together and also would have shown my son I didn't trust him. So I have to walk a very fine line between this sort of idea of control and this idea of permissiveness. And for, it's going to be a little bit different for every kid, for every family. Um, If you have a kid that's a real thrill seeker, who's really drawn to substances that uh, is friends with a lot of kids who use substances where there's a lot of sort of factors there would that make you say, mm, I need to watch a little bit closer, then you're going to watch a little bit closer. If you have a kid who's been making great decisions all along, and frankly, I hear from these kids all the time, kids who are good kids making good decisions, and yet their parents still monitor where they drive and read all of their texts and emails. And they say, "It's I'm doing this for your own good, sweetie, because I do. And what our kids hear from us is that we don't trust them to make good decisions. And there has to be a moment at which we give them some trust because it's not like they hit 18 and magically they just know how to navigate the world. We have to give them the leeway in order to do that. So it's a difficult question for each individual family situation. It's a really hard conversation to say, like, here is where the line is. I will tell you that I get emails and emails and emails and emails from parents who say, not only when I gave my kid more autonomy, I get, let them make more decisions. I let them have more control over their schoolwork, over the planning of their whatever. Not only did my kid rise to the challenge and my kid became more competent, our relationship improved. Because when you're not on top of them constantly, you have room to have the more significant conversations, the deeper conversations, the conversations kids tell me all the time. I I actually want to talk to my parents. I just don't want to talk to them about the stuff they want to talk about. So there's this, you know, it's going to be a little different for every parent. There's going to be a comfort zone for each parent. But I, I tell you, I'm going to err on the side of trusting my kid unless I have evidence to the contrary. And that is something that we have discussed since a very early age. So that's sort of the the place of comfort for, for my family anyway. And do you have any agreements about using? Okay. So yes, we do. And this has been really challenging because as a journalist and as a teacher and as a lifelong learner, my job is to keep researching things, find out stuff and try to become a better person, a better parent, a better writer, a better whatever that thing is, right? So I have two kids. My 22 year old grew up in a home where he was allowed to have sips of wine, where he was allowed to, you know, try some of the champagne where, um, you know, I admit in the book that the first wine he ever tasted was as an infant. And it was on my finger because it was an amazingly delicious bottle of wine. And I wanted that to be the first wine he ever tasted. That was what happened with my first kid. And then I spent four years researching this topic and I learned some stuff Mm -hmm. and I learned that what I was doing was counter to the research. And what the research shows is that if you have a clear message of no, not until this is legal for you, and for most places that's 21, right? In this country, it's 21. Then the kids of those parents have have much lower incidences of substance use disorder over their lifetime. Now, 
causation, correlation. There's also some issues there with some confounders, and we can argue about that later. But given that information and given the fact that it's the kids of parents who are allowed to have SIPs, uh, where the parents let the kids have SIPs, where they say, okay, well, I know they're going to do it anyway. So I'd rather them do it here. I'll take away all the keys and at least they'll be safe. The kids of those parents are much, not slightly, much more likely to have a substance use disorder during their lifetime. And given that information, things changed for my 17 year old and he thinks it's terribly unfair. And yet we talk about it all the time. I say, look, the best I can do as a parent is to model the, that I'm the kind of person where I do the best I can. And if I learn that I've been doing something wrong, I try to do better and I be as consistent as possible with you in my doing better. And I would hope that you would do the same thing. If you as a, for example, he produces digital music. If you found out that there was a much better tool that you could use to produce this sound, wouldn't you use that tool in order to create that sound rather than continue to reproduce your mistakes? And when you talk to kids about that, you know, I wouldn't be a good parent if I didn't adapt to what I know is the evidence on substance use and abuse. And, uh, you know, frankly, we all get caught up in this romantic sort of, yes, but if I do like they do in Europe and I teach my kids how to drink like they do in Europe so that it's moderation and not to excess, well, number one, that's counter to the research. And number two, Europe has the highest level of the highest rates of alcoholism highest. in the I, world. It's so, so good that you say it's that. It's a myth. I know. And it's, it's so important for people to hear that because I get that from people all the time. Yeah. Like how we're just doing it like the Europeans and that they don't have these problems. I'm like, what are you talking? What? Yeah. Where did that myth even come from? The media. No, I mean, movies and it's romantic and da, da, da. But a couple of years ago, France realized they had such a bad problem that they had to reassess their public health guidelines about how much alcohol during a week is acceptable. And P.S., this is all separate from the conversation that we should be having, which is there's really interesting conversation going on right now about just how risky drugs and alcohol are with adults. And for some people, you know, have at it. If you want to go smoke a doobie and you want to have a, you know, and you're an adult, there's a heck of a lot less risk to you as an adult than there is to the adolescent brain. The adolescent brain is in an incredibly sensitive state where it's growing, it's changing, it's you know, making new connections constantly. It's pruning. It's doing all of these things that it needs to do only during this period of time. You can't go back and remediate the things that don't happen. And so if you throw drugs in the mix and alcohol in the mix, you're automatically messing with that balance, messing with some of the things that can need to happen during that period. So you can talk until you're blue in the face about how risky drugs and alcohol are in an, ad, in an adult brain, but we're not talking about adult brains. We're talking about very sensitive, what's called plastic adolescent brains. And I have seen for myself the damage that drugs and alcohol can do to the adolescent brain. And it can be significant and it can be permanent. And so every time my kid says, you know, this is just unfair, Ben had different rules than I have, I'm going to say, look, here, here's what I know about the adolescent brain. Here's what I know about the research on who, what makes kids safer than others. And, um, you know, you came out of me with a, you know, with a higher risk of substance use disorder in the first place. So of course I'm going to do everything I can to protect you until you're, you know, 21. Honestly, just between you and me, we get, if we can get them to 18, 
Totally. We get the risk. We get their risk of lifelong substance use disorder back down to 10%. If they start drinking when they're in middle school, it's over 50% the chance that they'll have a substance use disorder during their lifetime. But if we can get them to 18, we're doing so great. We're protecting their brains as long as possible. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because um, those tiny sippers, so so two things that you mentioned really hit a nerve, which, which one is the people who are like, have a sip, you know, Mm -hmm. the grandparents who say, oh, you're being uptight. It's just one Mm -hmm. sip. That way it won't be so, you know, such a forbidden fruit that they'll be so tight. Like, well, we're just open about it. Like, what is this doing to your brain wiring? Let's have your brain wired and then you can get to it. It's not all substances are not forever forbidden. Some are because they don't have a second chance necessarily. And for some there, there's a, a possibility that you could really enjoy moderate drinking or moderate doobies. I haven't heard <laughs> well, we, in our house, we actually have, they have both examples. I mean, I don't drink at all and therefore we don't keep open alcohol in the house, but my husband does drink. And so it's really, it's been lovely because not only is he modeling sort of healthy drinking, which is, you uh-huh. know, with a meal as a social thing, blah, right. blah, blah. But he also models for them a healthy relationship where it would be easier for him if he could keep alcohol in the house. He wouldn't have to think ahead to go get alcohol before the meal where he wanted alcohol. He could just have it in the house. But out of love and care for me, he doesn't do that. And when we talk to your kids about their friends and, and you know, if they want to be um, appear you know, cool to their friends. And that's why they start using modeling for them relationships. Like I talk about my, my friends all the time with my kids, because I have one friend now who, um, anytime we're going to an event, she always calls ahead to make sure there's a non-alcoholic option for me just because she loves me. And that's something that when we talk about when we, and I talk about this a lot in gift to failure too, when we model relationships for our kids, it's really important to talk about what's what we're getting from that relationship, what feeds our soul from that relationship. And if our kids are having relationships that we're worried about, having conversations like, you know, sweetie, when you come home with so, from so-and-so's house, you just really seem on edge. And talking about what are the negatives that you're, that of this relationship, what are the positives of this relationship? And what do you feel like this relationship is giving you those kind of conversations. This is all about modeling relationships with alcohol, relationships with other human beings and the way we feel about ourselves and how we value ourselves. So I know that's easy to say because there are lots of kids growing up with parents who don't value themselves or, or, you know, rely on relationships in order to medicate other problems. And that's easy to say, more difficult to execute, but that's my goal as a parent is to try to model as much as possible healthy behaviors around everything, not just substances. Right. Now, if you have kids who are in that situation of, look, I, I have, I have a couple of friends who are kind of the troublemaker friends, or we do Mm -hmm. know they get in trouble a lot for this specific issue. Mm -hmm. Is there and you say like, well, I, I know that they're still going to be friends. I'm not going to just mm-hmm. have them, right. have them, but I'd right. rather them come over to my house and watch the movie at my house or whatever, right. um, or have the friends over that step between um, having them over and knowing that they're going to sneak the alcohol versus making sure that they're in a safe place, but not condoning any use of anything. How do you balance that? Like getting the kids to come to you, but knowing that those kids know damn well, they can't just smoke and drink and do drugs. Right. At your house. 
I mean, our reality, uh, what we knew early on was that we wanted to make our house the kind of place where kids would want to come to to be and convene. And so we were really fortunate, plus in that that became the case. And we also, I knew my kids' friends really, the the I knew the friends and I knew the parents, which was what was so scary about when we moved because my younger child, um, we moved when he was going into high school and we left behind all of those families that we trusted so much. And that was so frightening. Like I trusted my kids, two best friends. I trusted their parents completely without question. You could all be back and forth and there's no And now I don't know the parents of my kids' friends. And that's that is a risk factor for me. Um, so in making my house as appealing as possible as a place to be right now, it's not really been an issue, is really, really important. But I think there's this fatalistic thing we say, which is, well, kids are going to drink. Here's one thing we need to start thinking about. There's this thing called pluralistic ignorance, where we tend to overestimate other everyone else's interest in drugs and alcohol, and especially alcohol. Yeah. So when, and this is especially, I put this in the college chapter because this is where it really comes into effect, but the reason that we give kids real information, honest, real, true evidence-based information in order to rebut, in order to refute when someone says, oh, come on, just try it. It's no big deal. Everyone does it. If you know, for example, that in eighth grade, only 24% of kids admit that they've had a drop of alcohol before, a drink of alcohol before eighth grade is over, then you can go, your eighth grader has that information. So when we have this fatalistic sort of like, well, it's just what kids are going to do. That is the self-perpetuating fatalistic vision. So I was reluctant to write the college chapter because I'm like, well, what am I going to say? Kids are going to drink in college. The numbers are so much lower than I knew. And it's concentrated in a very small number of kids who do all of the drinking, like most of the alcohol, most, (laughs) most of the alcohol on college campuses is consumed by a fairly small percentage of the kids on the campus. And so the more I learned about the way that what's called inoculation theory, if this is the coolest thing, I I love this. And the reason that inoculation is actually in the title of my book, it turns out that when we give our kids good refusal skills, when we give them information that empowers them to, I hate to say, say no, because just say no doesn't work, but that gives them the power to refuse when someone tries to get them to drink or use drugs. Not only, this is the coolest thing, not only do they feel empowered and feel like that they can get out of this situation if they need to, it renders them more likely to refuse to use this information and it renders them more likely to talk to us about that moment. This is all part of inoculation theory. And this is the best part to me, it generalizes. So when we use inoculation theory to arm kids against risky behaviors, one risky behavior, for example, drinking drugs and alcohol or uh, drunk driving or uh, sex before you're ready, we actually also inoculate them against other risky behaviors that inoculation theory generalizes. And that is pretty magical to me. So that's why in the book, there's all these scripts. Like when I go out somewhere, I always have an exit strategy. Um, if I'm going to a party or a dinner party or a cocktail party or something like that, and I know I'm going to get tired, I might get hungry, I might, my reserves of self-control might get low. And so I just always have to have a way to get out of there if I need to. And my husband and I have a signal. 
kids, we need to arm kids with exit strategies as well. And not just exit strategies from the party, but exit strategies from the need to drink. And so that's why I get so specific for things kids can say. I'm taking an antibiotic or I'm taking a medication that if I drink, it's really dangerous, even if it's a lie or you know, I was talking with a parent just the other day who was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. You mentioned um, flushing. A lot of Asians, I don't know what the number is actually, some Asians get this condition where when they drink alcohol, they get uncontrolled flushing of their skin. And it's actually almost like an allergy. This is a wonderful excuse to be able to use. You have an allergy to alcohol or, you know, whatever the, or, uh, you know, I've been sick or I have a doctor's appointment tomorrow. I have um, my, how about this? My parents drug test me. My, my daughter tested. told me, asked if she could say that to people when she starts yeah. parties. Uh, every, I my like, son yeah. uses my, my son uses my alcoholism or he did for a long time as his excuse. Right. He would say, my mom's an alcoholic and it's just, I'm, I'm just, I would rather not. And I'm like, throw me under the bus anytime yeah. you want. Absolutely. So how, giving kids those scripts, those actual exit strategies, and it turns out when it comes to refusal skills, actually rehearsing them does work. And I know it sounds crazy, but good um, substance abuse prevention programs actually go through role-playing of refusal skills and it works really well. I think we underestimate the power of a good refusal skill, the power of a good excuse, the power of a little white lie in order to put yourself in a place where you feel safer. And I just would ask parents to stop for a second and not buy into the assumption that just everyone does it and there's no way around it because that's just not true if you look at the data. It is just not true that everyone drinks in college. The media shows us these images constantly of sort of the animal house, you know, college thing. And of course I'm dating myself. I also so much want to be cool to my kids. I want my kids to think of me as cool. I want my kids and they're never going to, but I want my kids to think of me as like someone who cares for them and is cool, but it's hard. That is so hard to, in order to step back and say, I'm sorry, I'm just going to have to be a hard ass here because that's just the smart thing to do. It's what the research shows. And it's, it's just given your, given, you know, and look at all these people. I can name 10 people in your family who have problems with drugs and alcohol and look where it, look where it got them. You know, we have very real examples to point to. Some families don't, but I have very real examples to point to. Here are two questions that my daughter asked me. She said, what if I mess up? Mm -hmm. And she knows that she could call me no matter what. Right, right. Of course. That sort of contract is really important. The whole, you know, you can call and get a ride no matter what, no questions to, you know, no interrogations till the next day, that kind of thing. Right. But she said, and I know you say that, Mm -hmm. but you also say all these things about my brain and starting. And she was like, so realistically, yeah. what face are you going to make if you, if I screw up? What will my punishment right. be? How will we come to terms with that? How will I come right. to terms with that? And it was just one of those things where I was just like, you know, it is true. These are these are tricky waters when you're trying to be a, a, that authoritative parent yeah. who's like both of the things. Except, because, except if what yeah. you're interested in is doing better next time, then it's not. And so the way we've That's approached this- great optimistic well, well, yes, but- Okay, I'll give you a realistic way to ground it. So um, earlier last summer, and I swear this is not a flex, this is a real story. Last year, last summer, I was um, on Dax Shepard's armchair expert. And Dax has been sober for, was sober for 16 years. Dax's entire 
all of his sponsorships, you know, his ability to get work as an actor, his ability to be, you know, all these people write him millions and not millions, thousands of people write him and say, you know, dude, I am sober because of you, because you're 16 years and your example. And Dax slipped and Dax started taking opiates and Dax realized that he is, he can't come clean, right? Because his sponsorships, like he and like lazy boy, his sponsor with his wife might pull out if they find out that he's using, right? So his entire career now, his podcast, his acting career, you know, his ability to get insurance as an actor, all that stuff is riding on him lying, right? And so he does that for a while until he realizes that he just can't. And he spoke to someone in recovery who said, Dax, if you think you are an example as someone with 16 years of sobriety, imagine the example you can be to someone if you come clean and start over. Because the realism, the real, the re- realistically, like if I were to start drinking today, I lose, you know, that's one of the problems some people have with, you know, 12 step recovery is I lose my nearly eight years of sobriety. I go back to day zero. So listen to the podcast of Armchair Expert called Seven Days when Dax went back to having seven days of sobriety. Because what ended up happening was Dax did not lose endorsements. He gained respect, he gained viewers, he gained followers, he gained people who said, and and his the person he talked to in recovery was absolutely right. As good of an example as he was as someone with 16 years of sobriety, he is a more powerful example to me now because if I were to mess up, knowing that Dax messed up and was able to come clean to the people that love him, I know if I messed up, I would be able to do that. And that's because Dax came clean. So we start from where we are, right? Every single day, I say this all the time to parents and it's a bit of a gut punch. But what I say is we have to love the kids we have, not the kids we wish we have. And we can't just love them based on their performance. We have to love them through their process of becoming. And so if we're able, if our kids can believe us when we say that, All of this is a process of becoming better. My rules about drugs and alcohol have changed because I'm trying to be a better mom. If more evidence came out next week showing that there was a better way to do that, I might change again. But all I can do is if I screw up today is to promise you that I'm gonna do better tomorrow. And if we're modeling that behavior for them, then your daughter should know, and of course we say this to them explicitly as well, that we love them not because they're perfect, but because they are these beautiful beings that are in progress. And we are never going to love them less because of their performance or because of, you know, because of their mistakes. And I think that is really tough because we do it all the time, right? We, we pretend we do this thing where we go nuts when they bring home an A and we are sort of quiet and dismissive when they bring home an F and that's called withdrawal of love based on performance. And that's emotionally damaging to do to a kid. But the way to get around that is to focus on the process. Okay, sweetie, interesting grade. Well, how are you going to avoid this happening next time? Or how are you going to replicate this happening next time? If it's a good grade, you say your friend got an A and you got an F. Well, what did your friend do that you didn't do? What did you do that your friend didn't do? What kind of decisions, what kind of practices, what kind of habits are working here? And what do we need to leave behind and what do we need to take forward? So the morning after your kid screws up, the conversation should be what led to you making that decision and what different choices could you make next time that would lead to a different decision? And 
I'm telling you, if that happened on the night before a school night and your kid is barfing the next morning, she is going to school because that is the natural consequence we have to deal with. So there is no rescuing your kid from the consequences. If your kid, you know, has really has screwed up and there are consequences they're going to have to face, the more you take those consequences away from them, the less likely they are to learn anything from that experience. So it's real. Those are really hard decisions to make, but at the same time, we have to love our kids from where we are. We have to love the kids we have and not the kids we wish we had. And as long as our kids understand that, then the more likely they are to believe us when we say, you know, we're all in process and, and I hope you're going to love me if I make a mistake in how I raise you. And just as I, I'm going to love you if you make a mistake in, in, you know, how you operate in the world. <laughs>